Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. Uh, I'm Evan Gottesman, our Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum, um, and I have Michael Koplow, our Policy Director, on the line. Hi, Evan. Hey, so we uh, are just coming out of the deadline for submitting final party lists in the Knesset elections coming up April 9th. So that means that parties had to submit their final slate of candidates if they were going to partner with a different party or have a vote sharing agreement, uh, which we can explain later. Um, That had to be finalized by Thursday night, Israel time. Um, So Israel Policy Forum on our 120 project, our elections resource, we have profiles of all of the parties, and I tweeted out all of the profiles yesterday, uh, but we thought that for the reading averse, we might talk about them on our podcast um, also, so to give you an audio version of that primer on the Israeli political parties, because there are a bunch of them. Um, I don't know if you saw that, I think there's like, it's like the record number of registered parties, I think like 47, 46... Yeah, I think the number was 47. Yeah. So there, there, are, there are a bunch of parties that we probably are not going to get into. Like there's the Pirate Party. Uh, they came dressed <laughs> as pirates. Uh, the uh, Marijuana Legalization Party, uh, which had been a perennial uh, candidate in Israeli elections, is actually not running this time right. around. Right. Uh, that's, a, that's a real real disappointment. Yeah. That's what, that's uh, Sipi Livni and the Marijuana Party were the two political casualties this week. Um, yeah. So... There's them. There, there's Zehut, which is a, a far right wing party, which is not likely to pass the threshold. So we're, we're not going to go into too much detail on them. Uh, but I guess we can start with the, the biggest one is uh, Kahol Lavan, uh, blue and white, which is the uh, merger of Benny Gantz's Hosin Israel and Yair Lapid's Yeshatid. And a lot of people had seen this as kind of an unlikely merger before it happened, kind of in the 11th hour. Right. So, you know, this merger always made sense from a political perspective. Lapid and Gantz are, are kind of in the, the same spot and appealing to the same sort of voters. They both have taken great pains to not be tarred with the, the leftist epithet, which really has become an epithet in Israeli politics. They both kind of telegraphed and signaled that they're that they're right of center on security issues and um, even on some cultural issues, but they've both basically been running on an anti-BB message more from a process standpoint than really a substance standpoint, making the case that he's been prime minister for too long. Uh, he obviously has all these corruption charges against him that he, his, his time has really uh, should, should be coming to an end. And that it's time to return Israel to a country where rule of law is respected and institutions are respected uh, and and some basic principles uh, of ethics are respected. And so, you know, they've both been competing over the same block of centrist voters. And it always made sense for them to join. I think that the thing that was in the way was ego for both of them um, in ways that are understandable. And, um, uh, you know, at the at the literally the, uh, the 11th hour, uh, they decided that they would run together and uh, the same way that it has made sense for them to do so from the beginning. I think it makes sense for them to do so now. Yeah. And and that has borne itself out in the polling so far. And a note on polling, I think it goes without saying that polls don't always turn out exactly uh 
the way, or the rather the results don't always turn out exactly the way the polls predict them, but they're a decent metric uh, gauging generally how a party will perform. The, the numbers won't exactly be the right way. You might not get the government uh, coalition that they're predicting, but you know I doubt you'd see a party polling at 30 seats uh, end up with 10. So you know they're they're polling now in, in the 30s. You know above, um, I think Channel 12 had them or Channel. Channel 13 had them at 36 seats. Channel 12 has them 35, Israeli television networks. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with that they also brought on Gabi Ashkenazi, who's another former IDF chief of staff, um, who, despite the name, is of Mizrahi background and uh, probably will appeal to a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of the uh, base that, that Likud might have gotten because... Uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, Lapid and Gantz were appealing to a lot of the same base, but a lot of the people who were voting for them uh, were coming from the left-wing parties. Just um, they were coming from the left-wing parties just because they saw, uh, you know, Lapid and Gantz as more viable candidates. But Ashkenazi now brings in uh, the opportunity to pull from the right, um, so that's something to watch. For sure, I, I mean, I think that the, the the real big benefit to this merger. Aside from the obvious one of it giving Gantz and Lapid the shot at becoming the largest party and getting the first chance of forming a government in all likelihood, um, is that Ashkenazi only agreed to join up if the two of them merged. He had he w- was reluctant, or I should say, he apparently refused to join with either Gantz alone or Lapid alone. And uh, as you point out, Ashkenazi does, in theory, appeal to a different group of voters than Gonson Lapidu. Um, he is he's got a better shot at drawing voters from Likud in particular. And so, you know, adding him really does make this um, the whole greater than the sum of its parts. And we'll see where it goes. But uh, it no matter where it ends up, it definitely seems like it is the party with the best chance in the last 10 years of beating Netanyahu uh, at forming a government. Whether whether they get there or not, it's a separate story. But uh, I think that you've got to at least give them a fighting chance. Yeah, and um, they're, they're polling, in, in all of the polls, they're polling well above Likud. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, in the Israeli political system, in this uh, parliamentary system, you have to form a coalition with other parties. So they could uh, poll at 50 seats, and if there were no parties to sit with them, uh, they wouldn't have a shot at forming a government. But if they get the most seats... Um, they probably will at least be given the first opportunity to try to form those partnerships that would be necessary to bring a government about. And uh, they have a rotation agreement, which is another thing that came out of this uh, 11th hour deal. So what that means is usually the the number one person on the list, uh, if they are selected, if their party is selected to lead the government, that person becomes the prime minister. And the number one person on Kahol Avan is Benny Gantz. Um, one of the issues that had been obstructing this union uh, was this battle of egos. You know, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid are both known for their respective egos. They both see themselves as being potential prime ministers. So uh, the deal that was struck is that for the first two and a half years, Gantz would be prime minister, and then Lapid, who's number two, would rotate in. Now, a lot of that could change during coalition negotiations. Um, it could change during the election. I don't see that happening just given the egos at play, but that changed last time with uh, the Zionist Union and Isaac Herzog of Labor and Tzipi Livni of Hatnua, uh tossed their rotation agreement at the last minute. Um, it could also change if the government, if they form a government and it doesn't last two and a half years, then that's also 
uh, a risk that Lapid is taking. So th- that's Kacholavan. The next, next one, the next likely to be the next largest party is Likud. Um, this is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's party. Um, it's historically been the mainstream right-wing party, uh, but it's started to cater more to what have traditionally been seen as the extremes of the Israeli right. Yeah, so Likud is the party I think is probably most familiar to anybody who would be listening to this podcast, uh, Netanyahu's party. Um, it has essentially been the, the dominant governing party of Israel since 1977 when Menachem Begin uh, won uh, an election for the first time from a right-wing party. And uh, as you point out, Likud has kind of morphed over the years from a large right-of-center party that was hawkish on security issues but also had a real commitment to liberal values and the the notion of, of equal rights, it really has in a lot of ways morphed into a party that is more narrowly constructed on straight right-wing cultural cultural identity identity issues and on pretty extreme policies when it comes to the West Bank. Uh, and you know what you're what you are alluding to is the fact that of the uh, 29 current Likud members of Knesset who are running for re-election, 28 of them support annexation of the West Bank. The sole holdout is Prime Minister Netanyahu himself, and, and that, that is that's, that's something... probably that's probably more more formality for for diplomacy reasons that he he never is going to outright say you know he'll he'll always dovetail around opposing a two state solution. I think today he said the Palestinian state endangers us, but you know he'll he. He'll never outright say um, explicitly, I oppose a two-state solution, uh, you know, probably for foreign relations reasons. Right. Um, although I, I also, I don't think he really supports a two-state solution, but I, I also don't think that, you know, in his heart of hearts, he's in favor of annexation either. Um, right. You know, I don't think, I don't think that, I don't think the only reason he's not on record as being the 29th Likud MK is because, you know, he's worried about diplomacy. I think that no. he actually... He has no desire to annex the West Bank. No, I, I, but, I, I agree. I agree with you, but I also think that he, especially at this point, is so desperate to win re-election and to retain his office that if there were no uh, diplomatic consequences for him going on record opposing a two-state solution, and it would bring him over the edge, and maybe we'll see this happen in the next month. You never know. Uh, then I think he would do it. Uh, but that's yeah. I mean, I, there's a good chance he'll be pushed into it. Um, but I don't think that he's kind of secretly committed to it by any means. Oh, certainly. Um, but, you know, in, in, in any event, um, you know, the point is that uh, Likud has definitely become a lot more right wing. It's also become associated with a bunch of, frankly, clowns uh, who who served as Likud MKs in the current Knesset. Uh, Oren Khazan is uh, the one who is the kind of most 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 clownish. Um, he of he of the Trump selfie. Um but frankly, you have other Likud MKs, including folks who are very high on the list, who um, exhibit what I'll call uh, surprising unprofessional behavior from Knesset members. So, um, you know, Likud has been the, the dominant party in Israel for a while. Uh, I still, you know, despite the current polls, there's a lot of excitement, obviously, over the Gantz, Lapid, Ashkenazi, Yalon merger. Um and so uh, Kahol Lavan is the head of Likud right now. But I think the closer we get to April 9th, um, the narrower that gap will be between the two parties. And 
you know, I think it's foolish for anyone to ever bet against Likud in the current Israeli political environment, uh, to bet against Likud being the largest party when all is said and done. Yeah, I think people shouldn't underestimate the appeal of business as usual and the status quo, that status quo might not be great or business as usual might not be great, but it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. And I think that's a lot of uh, Netanyahu's appeal to the Israeli electorate. Um, Whether or not people love him personally, uh, they may look and say things have been okay. You know, why rock the boat? Um, And he's going to be, I think, pulling out all the stops leading up to April 9th, no matter the moral, ethical implications, because he's fighting for his political career and he's fighting for his personal freedom because he sees a landslide victory and a a solidly right-wing block as the pathway to avoid jail time in these corruption cases against him. Uh, So he he has a lot hinging on this election. And we already saw that this week with uh, uh, Netanyahu uh, bringing about the merger of Bay Yehudi, the National Religious Party, with Otzma Yehudi, uh, this uh, fanatic Kahanist party, and the the real issue there is not not the Kahanists, although it's problematic that they're in the Knesset. People like that have been in the Knesset before. It's that you have the Prime Minister of Israel and the leader of, of what's ostensibly a mainstream party uh, pushing for this uh, this merger and, and really moving heaven and earth to make sure it happens. So, uh, you know that. That seems to be the direction that, that they're going in. And, and they're polling in the high 20s, low 30s. But like you said, Michael, I, I think that it's not it's not over until it's over. And, and, and I wouldn't underestimate their ability to pull out a victory. And even if they get less seats than Kaholavan to bring about a coalition. Um, yes. I mean, on, on that note, there is no question to me that Likud has, uh, and I believe there should be no question to anyone, that Likud has a much easier path toward forming a coalition, even with the current the current political uh, political math as of this morning's polls, than anybody else does. Yeah, I mean, and that's because, and, and we'll get to this in a second. I'm actually going to skip over the the Arab parties because I, I want to discuss them separately. But just for a second here, Likud doesn't have any kind of built-in deficit. They can work with most of the parties. You know, probably. Probably merits um, of the Jewish Zionist parties, maybe labor, are probably the only ones that absolutely wouldn't sit with them. Um, the the centrist and the center left parties have this built built in deficit of not really being able to include the uh, Arab parties, both because some of the Arab parties are, are too radical and don't want to sit uh, with a Zionist government, and because of a stigma that the centrist and left-wing Zionist parties have built up themselves, saying that they, they won't sit with Arabs. So, um, you know, and the right wing, of course, have, has played up the stigma on both sides there, but um, they have, you know, a built-in deficit of, of 10 to 15 uh, Arab seats that they're not uh, liable to work with or, or work with in a traditional way. But we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the Arab party. So skipping over... Uh, the next biggest party based on current pol- polling, because that would be Hadash and Tal, which are uh, Arab parties. Uh, we can talk about Bayi Yehudi, uh, because we were just talking about them uh, with uh, with Likud. Um, this had been the party of Naftali Bennett um, and Ayelet Shaked, but they left to form uh, the new right party. Um, and, and this when they left, the, the remains of the party were kind of centered around Takuma, the National Union, which is the more radical faction of an already pretty far right wing party um, led by uh, Bezalel Smotrich and uh, 
uh, the party is now headed by uh, Rab- uh, Rabbi Rafi Peretz, who's a former chief rabbi of the IDF. But the big story this week has been their merger with Otsma Yehudi, the Kahanist faction. Right, and uh, not just the fact that they merged with Otsma Yehudi, which uh, is the most odious political group, certainly in Israel today and possibly in Israeli history. Um, the story there is that Prime Minister Netanyahu, because he was afraid that Jewish home by Yehudi and Otsma Yehudi running separately would both fall below the threshold, leading to wasted votes on the right, he really forced this merger together, going so far as to offer uh, one by Yehudi MK a slot on Likud's own list to make sure that they get uh, extra members into the Knesset and offering the party two ministries in a future Netanyahu government. Um, so this isn't, you know, just as bad as it would be if this was just a case of a very far right wing religious Zionist party signing onto a deal with neo-fascist, racist, terrorist Kahanists, which is what they are, uh, in, in order to make the Knesset. It's that the prime minister wants them to make the Knesset so badly that he's actually willing to give them ministries in his next government. And, um, you know, there it, it does not speak well, obviously, for Netanyahu that he has abetted this. It doesn't speak well for Bai Yehudi that their central committee overwhelmingly and enthusiastically voted to accept this electoral alliance. And, you know, they say that, that it's just a tactical alliance. They're going to or a technical alliance. They're going to split as soon as the election is over. That doesn't change the fact that they are literally uh, abetting a banned a, a banned group. I mean, the, you know, Kahanist's mayor Kahana's party, uh, Kah, was not only banned from politics, but banned from existing inside of Israel and is uh, a designated terrorist group by the U.S. and Israel and the European Union. And the folks in Otsma Yehudit are all former Kach members and really the closest living followers of Mayor Kahana. Um, this is what has been abetted. And frankly, anyone who votes for Bayi Yehudi has to take that into account and can't be let off the hook by saying that, you know, they're not really voting for the Kahanists, they're voting for, for Bayit Yehudi. It's, it's one and the same. Yeah, no, uh, definitely. And and it, it carries a lot of interesting implications. You mentioned how uh, they are a designated foreign terrorist organization by the United States. Um, back when, uh, I think in 2012 or 2013, Michael Ben-Ari, who was a member of, uh, who's now a member of Otsma, uh, who was a member of... Uh, uh, the, head, the head of Otsma. Yeah. Um, if they get if they get one if they get one right team, he'll be the he'll be the um, right because they they were given I think the fifth and eighth spots or the fourth and eighth right. spots on the list so fifth, fifth and eighth yeah so um, Michael Ben Ari was wasn't able to enter the United States when he was in the Knesset uh, not even I, I think I don't even know if he was even a member of Otsma at that point I don't think he had founded it yet um, no. but just because of his associations with uh, with uh, Kach. And, um, you know, that carries interesting implications. Now, you have to ask yourself if Mike Pompeo and the uh, Trump State Department have any interest in keeping them out of the U.S. And I don't really think so. I don't think they know or care. But, um, you know, if they were playing by the rules, then um, you would have potentially um, some Israeli members of Knesset, uh, potentially some ministers in the government who shouldn't uh, legally be allowed to enter the United States. So... 
um, yeah, that, that's it's a pretty sad state. Um, but you know, they co- uh, people I think were expressing surprise at uh, just how radical they are. But I mean, Michael Benary came out of Takuma. Um, Smotrich is, is is really bad himself. He, he's really not that different from them in terms of his views on right. on the Arabs on on uh, the LGBT community. They're all they're all very vitri- uh, like viciously homophobic, um, which is right, something right. that's um, not that the Israeli right is perfect on that issue, but it's not in the United States. Like we have the the uh, kind of homophobic um, religious right wing, but the right wing it's not really an issue with the Israeli right the same way. But that's uh, Certainly not the case for uh, the the really far right because they are very homophobic and they're very racist and um, so you know maybe maybe it was a natural partnership um, but it certainly has shocked a lot of people out of uh, maybe like complacency with with what's been going on on the fringes of the Israeli right and now is being mainstreamed uh, by the prime minister himself. Right, I'd say you know the only real difference between Smotrich and Otsmai Hudit is that Smotrich wasn't old enough to actually be a member of Kach, um, because it was, you know, essentially gone, uh, gone before, uh, before he was, uh, an adult or possibly even, you know, before he was a teenager. Um, yeah, he was, so, you was know, Smokich has not himself been part of a banned terrorist organization, but, uh, in terms of, in terms of, uh, bigoted views, I would say that, yeah, he, he fits in, he fits in pretty well with, with his new, uh, with his new political partners. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, you have, uh, the new right party, um, which we'll get to soon, and they have they have some pretty extreme views on on Palestinians, on annexation, um, even on on the role of religious law in Israel. So um, it's something that's been been trending in the country for a while. But I think this uh, you know woke a lot of people up uh, with regards to uh, where they are. So um, next. Uh, Next uh, party we can talk about is uh, Labor. Um, Labor used to be the ruling party of Israel. Um, It wasn't always called Labor. It had a couple of different manifestations, but basically all the the parties that led up to uh, the modern Labor Party ruled Israel for the first 30 years, um, basically uninterrupted um, from 1948 to 1977. Um, And now they're polling at like five to eight seats. Um, barely over the, the threshold to make it into the Knesset. Uh, how did we get here? And, on, and to add on top of that, right, in the last election, uh, Labor running a Zionist union, Labor and Hatznuah together, uh, came in second place. And, uh, you know, the polling up until Election Day indicated that they had a good shot at actually winning. Right. And late labor independent, like within Zionist Union, uh, labor had 19 seats, which is, is not insignificant. Uh, right. Yeah. So, you know, with labor, I think it's two things. Uh, first of all, labor is indelibly associated with the peace process and Oslo, two things which for most Israelis have been badly discredited. And second is that labor's current leader, Avi Gabai, has basically done every single thing wrong that one could possibly do while helming a political party. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of amazing, you know, nearly, nearly everything he says and everything he has done has been the opposite of what somebody who wants to pick up more seats and appeal to more voters should be saying and doing. So, you know, I think that for labor, 
part of the road back is a going to be new leadership and uh, we should note that in the labor primaries that were held a couple of weeks ago the people who came in first and second are Itzik, Itzik Shmuley and Stav Shafir who are uh, two of uh, the youngest members of Knesset. Stav Shafir I think is actually the youngest Knesset member in history when she was first elected. They were the leaders of the 2011 social movement protests. They're both young, they're both dynamic, they are both uh, excellent parliamentarians, and uh, you know, if they are the face of the party, then I think uh, in the future, then I think that labor is going to uh, get back to being relevant fairly quickly. The second thing is going to be that labor is going to have to maintain its support for two states and maintain its support for separation from the Palestinians, because in a lot of ways that really is the core of the labor project, but come up with a way of talking about these issues that divorces them from the Oslo agreements, that divorces them from simply advocating more failed rounds of negotiations with the Palestinians, that flips the script somehow um, so that labor can still be associated with uh, a two-state ideology, but without some of the policies that I think people uh, associate with labor and um, are really uh, difficult for the party to overcome. It's uh, possible for them to turn it around. I think the one thing that might prevent them from turning it around is if somehow they, they end up below the threshold. I think that might just kill off the brand. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that is that, that's almost impossible, at least for me to foresee. I mean, I guess who knows what happens between now and April 9th. Yeah. But, you know, if they can't even manage four seats or five seats, um, I'll be shocked. Yeah, there's no there's no way to, to exactly know. But um, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. So next party uh, we can talk about is Yisrael Beitenu. Um, this is party led by Avigdor Lieberman. Uh, who was the defense minister in the last government. And when he resigned back in November, that kind of kicked off this whole election season. It didn't bring the government down uh, to a minority of seats immediately, uh, but it made the government too unstable because it brought it to a single-seat majority of 61 seats. It made it too unstable to really carry on for much longer. And, you know, a month after he resigned, uh, the government broke up and and elections are called. Uh, Yisrael Beitenu... Um, was, uh, from its founding in the early 2000s, um, Lieberman came out of Likud to start it, uh, was like the next iteration of Israel's Russian party. Israel, Israel, since the early 90s, has had a succession of parties catering to Russian-speaking immigrants. And, um, you know, Avigdor Lieberman was born in uh, Moldova when it was part of the Soviet Union, and he speaks Russian. And, and that's kind of what was supposed to be his natural base, but... Um, I think that base has been diluted in recent years. In the last election, um, the Russian vote, which is not insignificant, it's like 15 to 20 percent of the population, was split up among a large number of parties. And even though most of Beitenu's voters were Russian, most Russians did not vote for Beitenu. I think he's tried to reinvent himself as being more right wing than Netanyahu and have that be his main appeal, uh, not the Russian factor. Um, But you know, it's questionable how well that's working. Lieberman, I think, in the uh, broader Israeli public, uh, has this reputation of being a loose cannon and of being a little crazy. I mean, you look at the way he's uh, parodied on Eretz Nehederet, which is the Israeli kind of version of SNL. Um, they've done skits where he comes in as like a Red Army officer. They did a skit 
where he throws Netanyahu and Sipi Livni in jail and starts his own dictatorship. Uh, they had a skit where he was Darth Vader, so um, I think his reputation is a little uh, too off the walls. And then on the flip side, you had his performance as defense minister, where I wouldn't say his views are reformed, because he has very nasty, radical views, um, but his performance was not quite as bellicose as some people predicted when he was first given the defense ministry in 2016. So he's caught between this one place where I think he's viewed by a lot of people as too radical. On the other hand, uh, he didn't really live up to the radical persona he wants to play up for himself. So they're, they're hovering right around the electoral threshold, four or five seats, um, which is down from them being the second largest right-wing party. I think they had like uh, 13 uh, earlier in the decade, and they, they ran on a joint list with Likud, and he held a lot of important portfolios, foreign affairs, defense, but I don't think they're coming back from that. Do you think they'll make the threshold? Um, yes. I, I think that there, I think there is a market for him, like a small market. Um, I think it's older, uh, older Russian-speaking immigrants, and I think once that generation assimilates or passes away... Um, as depressing as it is to say, I, th I think that's when he'll go out of style. But um, I, I think I think there's enough of a market that that he'll he'll be around. But you know, again, you never know uh, how how that'll play out. Um, but I, I I don't think he'll ever live up to Lieberman and Israel Beitenu more broadly will ever live up to uh, where they were, you know, five ten years ago, where he was um, really. Uh, desired on Netanyahu's part. He, he was brought into the coalition after the elections. He, he started after 2015 in the opposition. He was brought in to be defense minister, um, and that gave them a more stable majority. But even by then, he, he didn't have that many seats. And um, I just don't think they come back. And that's something I think we'll see more broadly also with the Arab parties, is that these kind of sectoral parties where their, their main purpose is to appeal to a certain ethnicity or, or linguistic or religious group, I think are, are having a little identity crisis in this election. And by the way, it's important for our listeners to, to know that you have done uh, lots of research and writing on Avidra Lieberman and uh, Israel Beitenu and Russian voters. So uh, yeah. You yes. certainly, you certainly, you certainly know your stuff. I, I could do a whole podcast on them. I, I wrote an article in, in Haaretz last month. So if you want, if you really are dying to learn more about them, they're 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 very interesting, but they're not going to be a major player, I think, in this election. So I think it's time to move on to the next ones, which are uh, Hayamin Hechadash or the New Right. Um, why don't you give us a little overview of them? Sure. So Hayamin Hechadash is the new party founded by Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked who uh, left by Yehudi to form this new party. Um, you know, they they have branded it as Israel's Israel's real right wing that can be trusted, that is neither orthodox nor secular. Um, you know, they, they envision it as kind of a bigger tent than by Yehudi was. So far, they aren't getting a huge amount of traction. Uh, you know, they're probably going to end up with somewhere between five and eight seats. Uh, you know, most of which they will have cannibalized from their old partners in Bayit Yehudi. Um, but Bennett and Shaked are both really smart. They're really savvy politicians. And, you know, if they make it into the government, um, you know, and, and it, which which they will if Netanyahu wins re-election, they'll be a, a critical coalition partner. Um, 
they are going to have a lot more influence than their number of seats would indicate. Yeah, um, I think what's really interesting with them is that when they came out uh, and left Bayi Yehudi to start their own party, they, they were the face of Bayi Yehudi. I mean, um, Naftali Bennett was the leader of the party. Um, Ayelet Shaked was justice minister, was also very influential in the party. Um, and they seem to take the energy out of Bayi Yehudi. But this merger lately with Otsma um, and the attention they've been getting is now showing the uh, unified uh, far right list um, under Bayit Yehudi, polling about equal with uh, New Right, um, because initially New Right was surpassing uh, the old Bayit Yehudi in their performance. Um, but now, like you said, they're not; uh, their numbers aren't that that great, but their influence could be uh, big because uh, Bennett and Shaked are both uh, younger politicians, and I think they still have bigger ambitions ahead. You know, I think they both want to be prime minister one day, which is a scary prospect for any of us who care about uh, West Bank annexation and, and two-state solution because they are uh, in favor of uh, West Bank annexation. They are certainly not in favor of two-state solution. Um, right. And and then, I mean, I'll, I'll go further than that. I, I'll say that um, if within the next 10 years we don't see Prime Minister Ayala Chaked, I will be surprised. Um, I think that uh, she's extremely popular on the right. Um, almost everything she's done has been to set herself up to return to Likud and take over the party at some point. Um, and she's really smart and she's uh, a super effective parliamentarian uh, as justice minister in this government. She has affected you know, what many people, I think, accurately describe as a revolution. Um, she has led all sorts of populist campaigns against the high court and all sorts of other things. Um, and because she is a woman and because she is secular, um, she just appeals to a lot of people. And, uh, I think that she is one of, she is one of the smartest politicians in Israel and one of the most dangerous politicians in Israel. And, uh, I really do think and worry that we will see her as prime minister one day. It's not going to be as, as at the head of Hayamina Khadash, but I think that this is really just a way station on the way back to Likud. Yeah, and another thing to note with that is that's a, a big thing that I think in the long run distinguishes her from uh, her peers in uh, the old Bayat Yehudi because um, I don't think their views are that that far apart. You know, she's not a Kahanist, but you know, some of uh, her her views are pretty extreme, and and some of the the things she said are pretty bad. But um, you know, she comes from a secular background. I'd say her views, her views are extreme on, on Israeli-Palestinian issues, but I wouldn't necessarily call her an extremist on social issues. No, not, no. again, not, not quite to the extent uh, that the people in Otsma and by Yehudi and, and Takuma are. But, um, but I, I think the, one of the biggest distinctions is also just her background, that she can appeal to a broader audience. And that, you know, whereas I think it would be accurate to call by Yehudi National Religious Party, I don't think you would necessarily call – and by Yehudi came out of a merger with the party – literally called the National Religious Party, but I, I wouldn't call New Right a, a national religious uh, sectoral party. And, and I think that was one of the reasons they left to start it, is that they didn't want to get uh, identified as national religious party. Right. By Yehudi is um, you know, the uh, kind of the banner, the banner carrier for the Dati Lumi movement in politics. Um, and there's no question that Bennett and Shaked did not want to have to keep on dealing with um, running decisions by uh, national religious rabbis. 
um, or dealing with some of uh, some of the more um, odious social policies that folks in Bayou D were pushing um, for religious reasons. So yeah, I agree. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't describe Hayimina Khadash at all as a religious Zionist party, and I don't think that they themselves want it to be thought of as such. Right. Um, and, and I think that just cuts to also the, the mainstreaming, though, of the, the annexation view and, and their position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as, as annexation and, and effectively a single state, um, is that that was something that was identified with the, the religious Zionist sector, and they're bringing that away from any kind of sectoral or, or religious affiliation. Um, and, um, you know, it's not to say everyone who votes for them votes for them on that issue. And, and there's the polling that we've seen done uh, by commanders for Israel security that shows even among the right wing parties, um, not all their voters by, by a long shot. In many cases, a majority of their voters don't support annexation. But that is the party platform. And that is what they will try to affect when they are in the Knesset. And um, you, know, you put out the very bold prediction of Prime Minister Ayelet Shaked in the next 10 years. In the next couple of months, you could have Defense Minister Naftali Bennett, which would give him a, a direct administrative role um, over the settlements in, in the West Bank um, and you know, give him a pretty uh, easy path to pushing uh, you know, annexation of the West Bank in whole or in part. Their, their platform is just Area C. Um, I say just area C, it's 60% of the West Bank, and that, that, would, <laughs> that, that would cut off uh, really any possibility of a two-state solution and leave 169 islands of, of Palestinian territory, and, and, and it's uh, it's it's a bad thing, but that, that's a whole other podcast. So right. uh, mo- moving on to, it's a whole other organization, that's Israel Policy Forum. Um, so <laughs> uh, moving on to uh, the last couple of parties, so we have Kulanu, um, Moshe Kaplan's party was a centrist, social, economic issues-focused party. Uh, he had a pretty good performance in the last election. Um, he came out of Likud, uh, not doing so well this time. I, I think the field is just too crowded with parties pushing similar platforms. Um, you know, if, I think if you were on the right end of Kulano, you can vote for Likud. If you were on the left end of Kulano, you can vote for uh, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid. And they're they're polling right at the threshold. And Maybe they pass, maybe they won't, but I, I don't think uh, he'll get like a, any kind of important ministry um, like he did last time when he got the finance ministry. Yeah, there are two, two things that are interesting about uh, Kulan at the moment, I think. One is that Kahlon, who chooses the list himself, uh, he's like Lapid, um, Kahlon literally booted out every single current Kulanu MK who isn't focused exclusively on social issues. So, you know, Yoav Galan, who is going to leave anyway because he wanted to go to Likud, but Yoav Galan, who is a retired major general, you know, went from Kulanu to Likud. Michael Oren, who um, was Kulanu's face for foreign uh, foreign policy, um, he's no longer there. So Kahlon really, for this election, decided he was going to double down on the social issues and really make Kulanu a, a single-issue party uh, in its representation as well. And it has not helped in the polls. If anything, it's been the opposite. Um, so it's an interesting it's an interesting choice there. Um, second, assuming that Kulanu does pass the threshold, you know, with four seats or you know maybe maybe if they're lucky five, um, any any reasonable path to a uh, Kaholavan government probably has to start with uh, convincing Kulanu to join that coalition. So. 
in a in a right wing government, the BB government, I agree. You know, Kahlon is not going to be finance minister again, but it's possible that he will be able to uh, extract something very big from the other side uh, if it turns out that he's the one who throws who throws the government to them. Yeah, and I think it would be a pretty big coup for uh, Kahlon to get him because. Uh, even though in theory he, he's really not that far off from where Gans and Lapid are, um, if he's far off at all from them, uh, he he did uh, make some comments that he was uh, pledging himself to a Netanyahu government again. So um, yes, of course, oh. yeah, for sure. It, I mean that's that's where that's where his sympathies lie, which is why I say that if if they are able to peel him off for the other side, it's going to require something big. Right. And, and so, you know, that obviously everything is subject to change other than the, the party list themselves. But in terms of what people have promised and, and what they've said could change. But um, right now, that's uh, that's kind of where he where he stands. So, um, yeah, um, the next so the next party we have is Merit and then we move to, I guess, the sectoral party. So Merit is the, the leftmost Zionist party. You know, they're big on two-state solution, big on uh, minority rights, big, they're, they're a social democratic party in terms of their, their economic position. Um, they've always had an okay showing. Um, this time they're really struggling around the threshold. And there have been talk of them merging or, or doing a joint list with labor, which Avi Gabay, the labor leader, rejected. Um, I think in, in other scenarios, um, in other elections, uh, the rejecting that makes sense. I think that there, there are a decent number of people in labor who don't want to identify with merits because it is seen as so left-wing. Um, but I think under the current circumstances with both of them near the threshold, um, I wonder how many of those people would really not vote for labor, if, if, if how many of those people would really not vote for labor because of the merits connection. But whatever the case, they, they didn't uh, come together on a merger, so they're running separately, and merits is sitting right at the threshold. Yeah, I mean, I... My hunch is that Meretz uh, will will get over the threshold as well, just like Labor. So I don't think at the end of the day, the decision not to run together is going to, you know, have have really fatal consequences for either. Um, but yeah, Meretz Meretz is, is probably the most consistent party in all of Israeli politics uh, in terms of, you know, their positions really remain the same. They uh, their constituency is very well defined, um, and uh, you can pretty much count on them being there with four or five seats. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think also that's accurate what you said about their their showing and, and the expectation that they'll be in the Knesset. I think merits like Labour, and also what I was saying about Lieberman's party, uh, Yisrael Beitenu, is that these parties all have a solid, unchanging market. It's just the extent that they can appeal to a broader audience that I think uh, shapes their ability to perform better. Um, so yeah, I think that, that enough people will turn out to save their party because I think the people who do identify with merits identify with it very strongly and, uh, will not, uh, you know, don't want to see their party, you know, die without a fight. Right. Um, so now we have the sectoral parties, which you can run through real quick. So you have the ultra Orthodox parties and the Arab parties. Um, we can start with the ultra Orthodox. There are two ultra Orthodox lists. There's, uh, Yachtur HaTorah or United Torah Judaism and Shas. And uh, UTJ is the Ashkenazi list, and Shas is the Mizrahi list. Uh, UTJ brings together two streams of ultra-Orthodox uh, Judaism um, that don't necessarily agree with each other, but wouldn't probably make it into the Knesset alone. Um, and, um, you know, they're always there. I think their alliance was formed back in the 90s. 
um, and they're a pretty consistent presence in Israeli politics too. Um, they're interesting and even different from Shas because they're they're basically a non-Zionist party. They're not like left-wing anti-Zionists, but they don't identify with the idea of a secular uh, Jewish state uh, before the coming of the Messiah. So they um, you know they they want to be in every government to to make sure that they get. Um, things that are in their interests, um, like state support uh, for their programs, and, and you know, there's, the, there's always been the whole uh, contentious fight over the, the draft, um, but when they join the government, they always take ministries that are not really identified with, like, statecraft, like, you know, you'll never see a, a UTJ foreign minister or defense minister, um, you know, they'll take on things like the, the health ministry, um, which are not right. Although they won't. Important to note, they won't actually um, agree to serve as minister. It's always deputy minister. Right. That's that's also true. Yeah. Um, and because of because of this the the non the non Zionist angle. Yeah. And and, and they. Um, yes, yeah, so they'll be deputy ministers and and always in departments that that really aren't um, aligned with any kind of practice of, of diplomacy or security issues. Um, Right. And by the way, speaking of another, you know, another topic that we could devote an entire podcast to, um, there's nothing more interesting than the uh, the splits and the developments that are going on within Haredi politics. So um, that's that should probably be a podcast for another time. Yeah. But um, within UTJ, within UTJ itself, there's a lot of churn between the uh, the Hasidic and and uh, non-Hasidic factions. Right. And, and I think it'll be interesting to watch just a quick mention of uh, how their voter base behaves, because in previous elections, they kind of took their cues uh, from the rabbis. The, these parties, both UTJ, um, two constituent parties, and Shas, which we'll get to in a second, have a, a political leadership, and they have a rabbinical uh, council that oversees them. And, and their voters basically took their cues uh, from the rabbis. But then in the municipal elections last year, uh, the rabbis couldn't agree on a candidate to support and they kind of told their voters vote for whoever you want and um, you know for a lot of people it's probably the first time they were voting for whoever they wanted and I, I think it's a question of whether uh, those people especially younger um, younger Haredi voters are going to surrender that newfound uh, political freedom um, so quickly but you know UTJ is still polling consistently they'll be in the Knesset um, I think there's also a, a question of uh, how they would relate to Yair Lapid, um, you know, because he's always had a contentious relationship with the ultra-Orthodox, so he's tried to smooth it over in recent years. Uh, but he kind of started off when he entered politics as one of his pet causes was kind of taking on their uh, their influence, their level of influence in Israeli politics. Yeah, I don't think there's any scenario in which UTJ agrees to sit in a coalition with Lapid. Um uh, honestly, I'd say I'd say there's about as much chance that uh, <laughs> that the Arab parties would sit with Otsma Yehudi. The 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 enmity for Lapid in UTJ is that high. Yeah, um, which which is a, a big deal if if Lapid ends up, um, you know, uh, leading the or Gantz and Lapid end up leading the government because um, up until now UTJ has been in you know basically uh, every coalition. I think every coalition, maybe not every single one, but. Um, you can correct me, but uh, no, not everyone, because uh, they were left out of Netanyahu's um, 
when Netanyahu and, and Lapid when, when Lapid was that, there, right, 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 in 20, right. 2013 to fourteen, they they weren't there, but they they try and make it into almost every one because they they have a, a narrow set of interests. So that would be a big deal if they weren't in it again. Right. Um, next up is Shas, which is uh, catering to the Mizrahi ultra orthodox uh, sector. Um, they're more Zionist um, in the way they they relate to the state, um, but similarly, you know, directed by a political leadership and a rabbinic leadership um, and they're you know a, a pretty consistent presence in Israeli politics but they had a split a couple years ago right uh, between uh, Aryeh Derry who currently leads Shas and Eli Yishai who led Shas while Aryeh Derry was uh, was in prison and barred from politics for uh, for being convicted for corruption um, and Eli Yishai is, is farther to Aryeh Derry's right and so he has his own far right party uh, that itself is trying to is trying to make the Knesset. So a couple of interesting things about Shas to note. One is that because it represents Mizrahi voters writ large and not only Haredi Mizrahi voters, it means that um, Shas can more easily sit in a government with Lapid or or someone like Lapid. Um, Shas tends to be a little more ideologically flexible than than UT, UTJ does. Um, and uh, second, Shas right now is is running almost on a pro-Netanyahu platform above all else. They're actually running ads uh, that show Derry together with Netanyahu and, uh, you know, with with a slogan that basically says, uh, if you want if you want Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, vote for Shas. Um, but as I said, Shas actually is more ideological, ideologically uh, and politically pliable than UTJ is. And even more so than Kulanu, there really is no path to a coalition for Lapid and Gantz without getting Shas to sit in the government with them. And I think that, you know, no matter what Shas is saying now, because uh, it does want to want to hang on to culturally right wing Mizrahi voters who are not Haredi. I think that's the reason that Derry is binding himself so closely to Netanyahu right now. It's to attract the non it's to keep the non Haredi Shas voters. When push comes to shove, uh, I do think that Shas and Derry, it's, it's an uphill battle, but Shas and Derry, I think, can potentially sit in a coalition with Gantz and Lapid if, you know, if, if they're promised enough. Because, you know, Derry, whatever else he is, he's really smart and he's pretty kind of um, cynical brass tacks about, uh, you know, going with whoever will, will give his party the most benefit. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, uh, they, you know, they have some flexibility. I mean, it was um, they, they've definitely had, I think, a more defined right wing tilt in recent years in terms of a, a defined political position. But um, it was uh, Shas's uh, late uh, spiritual re- uh, leader, um, uh, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, who, who came out with a platform saying that it was religiously OK to uh, make territorial concessions. And that that sort of paved the way for them to sit in government with Yitzhak Rabin. So um, they have that possibility, although Derry is facing legal legal troubles and, and corruption charges of his own. Yes. And um, he's Perpetu- had, perpetually. Perpetually, although, although uh, from what I understand... Yeah, the moment he's actually under investigation. Right. And and from what I understand, though, in the past, the, the rabbinic uh, council has kind of sided with him and, and given him support, but this time they've been a little lukewarm. Um, maybe they're finally fed up with with him, um, but um, that's more of an internal split. Um, so now the, the other side of the sectoral issue are the, the Arab parties. 
Um, Arab parties have a, an interesting history in Israel. Um, early on, uh, the uh, main parties would run what they called Arab satellite parties. They wouldn't have Arab members in, say, labor or labor's uh, predecessors. You would have, like, the the Arab labor party that would that would be their, their satellite um, party. But now you have uh, these fully independent Arab parties that are certainly not associated uh, with any kind of Zionist party. Um, they're all smaller. Um, in the last election... Uh, four of the Arab parties ran as one list because Avigdor Lieberman, who's now hovering around the electoral threshold, uh, raised the electoral threshold or, or pushed for it to be raised. That to be raised by uh, legislation, but he was the main advocate for that to try and keep the Arab parties out. And so they all banded together and they ended up being the third largest list in the Knesset. Um, but that arrangement, uh, which was appropriately called the joint list, that arrangement didn't really pan out that well. Um, and I think there, there are two reasons for that. Um, first of all, it, it was plagued with these really complicated rotation agreements um, to make sure that each of the four parties within the joint list were equally represented um, or had fair representation. You know, different members of Knesset within the list would rotate out. Um, after a certain period of time, there were, there were disagreements over how that would play out. Really, the only thing that was binding the joint list together is that they're all Arab, Palestinian, Israeli. And uh, they're all, to some degree, non-Zionist, anti-Zionist, depending on which faction. Uh, but it brought together Hadash, which has the Israeli Communist Party, and United Arab List, which is the uh, Islamist Party in Balad, the Pan-Arab uh, Nationalist Party. It's probably the only party anywhere in the Middle East that is still pushing Pan-Arabism um, as an ideology. Um, and, you know, these are ideologies that I'm, I think in some of the Arab countries people have fought civil wars over, uh, but in Israel they all sat in one party just so they could make it into the Knesset. Um, it, would be like, uh, it would be like if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Ted Cruz uh, started a party together because they both have Hispanic ancestry. Um, it, 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 it was a pretty flimsy um, mechanism, and I think it, it would be a mistake because I think there's a tendency to write them all off as the same kind of party. Um, they're not, and they basically split into two lists uh, because one of the parties, Tal, uh, led by Ahmad Tibi, who was Yasser Arafat's uh, advisor in the PLO on Israeli affairs back in the 90s, he took his party out. He, he had very small representation within the joint list, and he basically said, I have a pretty decent popularity among Arab Israelis. I think I can and run successfully on my own. And he felt like the joint list wasn't accomplishing a lot. Um, I think it was really weighed down by the more extreme side, by Balad and United Arab List, um, in terms of what it could do. For example, uh, Meretz offered them a vote-sharing agreement, that their excess votes that wouldn't equal a full Knesset seat um, could be shared among those two parties. And um, as I understand, I think Hadash was okay with it, and Balad rejected it, because they, they didn't want any kind of association with any kind of Zionist, uh, no matter how left-wing, no matter how opposed to the occupation. Um, and, you know, I think those sorts of things weighed, weighed them down. Um, Hadash, uh, Hadash's leader, Ayman Oda, had to reassure uh, his voters. He had to go around uh, and, and, I think, lobby some of his voters in the last election that they would maintain their commitment to gender equality and LGBT rights uh, because of their association with the Islamist party, which uh, is not necessarily in favor of those things. So, um, uh, so now you have Tibi... Uh, started running on his own and eventually was joined by Hadash and they're polling at about six or seven, or not six or seven seats, they're actually up to around 10 or 11 and then you have the more extreme half of the, the Arab spectrum, uh, Balad, which is the, the Nationalist Party and the United Arab List, 
which is the Islamist party, and they're at about four seats, uh, right around the threshold. Um, Balad and United Arab List are not going to support any kind of uh, Israeli government, even if it was led by Tamar Zamberg. Um, they, they will be ranting and raving from the opposition benches. Um, Khadash and Tal, I think, wouldn't join a government, wouldn't necessarily be welcomed in one, but Tibi actually said that he would support a minority government, which would mean, for people who aren't familiar with how the, the parliamentary system works, uh, the president of Israel asks all the party leaders who they would recommend to lead a government. So Ayman uh, Oda and Ahmad Tibi of Khadash and Tal, they could say, we want Benny Gantz to lead the Israeli government, but we're not going to join his government. Um, and so they would vote with him probably basically on everything except military issues. Basically, their, their position is they don't want to be uh, associated with any kind of war in Gaza or any, you know, crackdowns in the West Bank because, uh, you know, they, that's their, their solidarity with their Palestinian uh, brethren in, in the territories. Um, but I, I think that they could be a factor in how the government forms, and I think the split in the Arab bloc allows that to happen, because if they had run as all one party, uh, Balad and the United Arab List probably would have blocked any kind of cooperation whatsoever with uh, center and the center left. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really good analysis. And um, listen, within, as you say, people tend to lump in all of the Arab parties together, uh, you know, just because they're all they're all Arab. Um, and there are real differences between them. And I think that, you know, to the to the extent that to the extent that it's important, and I think it is important to have um, real Arab representation that takes representation seriously and not just sort of as, you know, a, a protest vote against the evil Zionists. Um, I desperately want to see Ayman Oda and uh, Ahmed Tibi do better than the other list. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I don't want to uh, get my hopes up too much um, because, you know, they, they have Tibi and Oda have a mixed record themselves, but I, I, do, sure. I, I do have a lot of, um, optimism about how they can perform now that they're separate from uh, Balad and uh, and United Arab List. Um, though one, one note on them and, and, and how they fare, um, I think Hadash and, and, and uh, Tal have a decent chance of attracting a not insignificant number of, of far-left Israeli Jewish votes. Um, I don't think there are going to be that many peop- uh, Israeli Jews voting for Balad, even, even the most left-wing. Uh, within Hadash, they always reserve one seat for an Israeli Jew, and for a while, up until this election, it was Dov, uh, uh, Dov Kenan, um, who um, you know had been in the Knesset for a while and was a known quantity. The guy they brought in this time is a guy named I don't know if you've, you've heard about this Ofer Kasif, is a Hebrew University professor who is, is very outspoken in his belief that Israel is the the modern day. Uh, heir to Nazi Germany, and, and, and uh, you know, he's gone on RT and, and made the rounds in really uh, far-left circles, um, and um, I'm interested to see how that plays with Khadash's Jewish base to the extent that it exists, um, or if people even, uh, even care, because uh, uh, their previous uh, representative, um, Again, Dov Kenin uh, was like a, was a known quantity in the in the Knesset and, and had had uh, been 
involved in Hadash and the Israeli Communist Party for a while. So we'll see. Um, so we can close it out. Michael, thanks for, for joining us and, and giving your analysis on where the parties stand. Um, you know, I want to reiterate our big caveat at the beginning that a, a lot can change in the next month. Um, but these are the final slates. That deadline has passed. Um, so these, these are all the players to watch. Oh, and there's also, we didn't talk about it, but there's Gesher, which is one new party. Uh, but they're, they're polling below the threshold, and they're, they weren't allowed to join any parties uh, because uh, their leader, Orly Levy, had left Yisrael Beitenu during an act of Knesset and chose not to resign her seat. So legally, she, she was not allowed to run with existing parties. And she didn't really jump on any alliances either. But, yeah. Um, so, so that's these are the players to watch. So, Michael, yeah, and, uh, no doubt, no doubt, we'll do a bunch more of these uh, horse race podcasts before it's all over. But uh, you know, this is this is just a starting. Point.